welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. everybody. Uh, this is Barney Leventino. Welcome to uh, Turn the Page, the podcast of Syosset Library. Um, my guest today is um, author uh, Michael Benson. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Barney. Um, Pleasure being here. I'm glad, I'm glad to have you. We, uh, this week, we had to reschedule a couple of times, but uh, we're, we're looking forward to having a little chit-chat today. And um, uh, Michael's book is um, it's an interesting one. Uh, the title, when I first saw it, 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 it almost sounds like a bad movie title, but uh, it's it's legit, and it is or a good movie title. Or a good movie title. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the the content is good. Um, this book is Gangsters versus Nazis, and uh, it's a story that a lot of people are not familiar with, I'm sure. Um, and uh, Michael, how did you um, come to the story, and just give us a brief overview of what the book's about? Well, I, I first uh, heard about uh, the, the battle between Depression-era gangsters and the rising American Nazi movement uh, by studying for my book, Who's Who in the JFK Assassination. And during that time, I read 26 volumes of uh, Warren Commission testimony exhibits twice. And in there, uh, Jack Ruby and his, uh, his relatives, Jack Ruby being the man who shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin, um, tried to uh, convince his interviewers, who happened to be Gerald Ford, a future president, and Earl Warren the, of the Supreme Court Justice, that he was actually a good guy. Because back in the olden days, he was one of those guys in Chicago who busted up the German-American Bund meetings when they were spreading anti-Semitism. And this turned out to be true. I, I did not know that this was an organized effort that went from coast to coast in 1938 until I was informed of the fact by my literary agent, Doug Grad, during uh, 18 holes of golf here in Brooklyn. And I immediately knew that it was a story that needed to be told. You know, it, it's funny. I've been talking to um, a number of authors lately and, and a, um, a theme that has run through. And it's, it's whether I'm speaking to, um, to fiction writers or nonfiction writers, the um, uh, the, the question of plausibility of the stories, and I, I've talked to a couple of authors of um, first-time fiction um, thrillers, and uh, <laughs> as a reader of, of, of a thriller, um, I, I'm always suspicious, and, and, and I, I, I'm disappointed when the plot lines just become so improbable as to you know, lose any sense of, of reality. And the same holds true. I've spoken to a couple of authors lately of nonfiction um, works where um, the subject matter on its face just seems like just such a crazy, crazy notion. And as I'm reading this book and I'm learning about what transpired, it's just it's just a really a fascinating, fascinating story. Well, I, I think it's one of the few stories I've ever encountered in which the heroes are the only ones who break the law. The bad guys break no laws. Uh, it's in the, the twilight zone between what's legal and what's just, I suppose. It has uh, gangsters who are you know, this close to being on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, working hand in hand with the U.S. judicial system 
uh, in order to rid uh, America of a menace that is particularly troubling to Jewish Americans. Um, so yeah, in terms of plausibility, no, you would never believe it in a million years. It's, I, I, I compared it at the very beginning of the book to issue number one of Captain America comics, uh, where we have heroic Americans punching out Nazis uh, for, the, for the sake of just telling them to shut up, stop saying bad things about Jewish people. Um, so yeah, I mean, the only, the only part I still find implausible <laughs> is that Bugsy Siegel uh, used his hands on Nazis because I'm, I'm pretty sure that he had, a, he had a rule that he used his hands only on women and he shot men. But according to Mickey Cohen, his good friend, uh, when it came time to, to punch a Nazi in the nose, Benjamin Siegel was in. It's almost like a, a public service announcement um, for, uh, for the mob in terms of what they were doing. So how did it come about? What, what, what brought the mob into fighting? the? And actually, let's backtrack a little bit. Talk about um, what the state of the American Nazi Party was in the 1930s, where it was at and what was going on. Well, yeah, in the 1938, which is when most of the book takes place, uh, America's been in the Great Depression for almost a decade. And nobody has any money. Seems like nobody's ever had any money. And it's very easy under those circumstances to spread conspiracy theories with scapegoats. And what certain German Americans were doing were they were scapegoating Jewish Americans, saying the reason we don't have any money is because they have it all. They're all communists, and they've taken all the money, and they've wrecked our economy, and that's what's wrong. If we get rid of the Jews, all of this will be fixed which of course came to a, as a great shock to the, uh, the rag man in the streets of Newark, New Jersey, whose horse just died in the middle of the street. I do not have all the money. I don't know what you're talking about. But it, it, it finally reached ahead, and there was probably 100,000 supporters of Hitler in America in 1938. But it came, and what bothered Jewish American leaders the most was the brazen nature which, with they were which they were demonstrating. Uh, they were having parades on... East 86th Street in Manhattan that resembled the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, only instead of balloons, they had Sig Heiling and swastika flags. Just shocking. And the last straw comes when they have a rally in the Bowling Green section of Manhattan, southern tip of Manhattan, uh, at the same time as a U.S. Maritime Service uh, ceremony that was going on on the front steps of the U.S. Customs Building, gorgeous building. And the good Americans had to move inside because the German Nazis refused to stop chanting and waving around their signs saying horrible things about Jewish people. And it was a standoff for a while. And eventually the, uh, the good Americans gave in. And uh, a witness to this was Judge Nathan Perlman of uh, New York courts, oh, who uh, had a couple of drinks on the matter, thought it through. And the next day in his chambers, he called up Meyer Lansky the, uh, the all-time greatest number one Jewish gangster, and said, Meyer, do you have anybody who might want to punch a Nazi? And Meyer said, uh, yeah, I think, I think I do. And that's how it starts. Um, the uh, main character, I think the, the leader of the, um, the German-American Bund, as they were calling themselves, um, Fritz Kuhn, um, kind of a... Uh, the Bundesführer. Interesting character in himself. So talk a little bit about him, where he came from and, 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 and how he got to where he was and what he was. Well, 
he was he was the leader of the when when Fritz Kuhn came on the scene, the organization, uh, the biggest German American organization, was called the uh, the Friends of New Germany, and uh, they were uh, pretty much put down for being anti-American. So Fritz Kuhn takes this group and changes the name to the German American Bund. Now you can't say it's anti-American because it's got American right in its name. Uh, he was a guy with a protruding jaw, low brow, always grim in appearance. Um, he looked like a general slaughtering his enemy, but alas, it needed to be done. Uh, and when he spoke in public, he would stick out his jaw and he'd become a picture of arrogance and defiance. Um, he, when we first pick him up, he is working for uh, Ford Motor Company and still not a well-known fact, but Henry Ford was a major anti-Semite and, and a proponent of, uh, of Adolf Hitler uh, right up until uh, Pearl Harbor, which of course changed everything. But Kuhn claims to have been with Hitler in the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch, the first time Hitler gets his name in the newspaper, and that he is in America as a disciple of Hitler's to gather up an army of, of like-minded people. And in the short term, they want to get German-Americans to vote as a block to get, uh, to get right-wingers into a political office. And in the long term, they want to make America into a carbon copy of, of Nazi Germany, where they could you know, systemically get rid of groups they don't care for. You know, and they would start with the Jews. Um, now, Fritz Kuhn was also a con artist. He, uh, he frequently passed himself off as a physician even though he was merely an x-ray technician. Uh, he was fired from the Ford Motor Company because he was doing his Hitler impression at the top of his lungs in a, in a hospital dark room. And he was also bothering the ladies. Uh, another problem of his, he, was a, he had a wife, but he had a girlfriend uh, in every town as well. Um, so when he, uh, he joins the, the Friends of New Germany, he changes them into the, the German-American Bund and travels the country giving rousing speeches. Uh, he speaks of German-American unity and what German-Americans need is a new organization with Hitler's agenda working in the U.S. Um, and he compared Hitler's ideas to the founding fathers of America. And one of his tricks was he would always have, he would always have a picture, a portrait of George Washington right next to Hitler's behind the stage. And there would always be an American flag next to the swastika flag. Uh, and that, that was the, he was he was the leader. He also was not the world's most effective leader because he was such a loner. Apparently, he had secrets. He always traveled by himself. He drank constantly. He always had schnapps before he gave a, a speech. Uh, twice claimed he woke up in a car hanging off a bridge because he'd fallen asleep at the wheel. And uh, <clears throat> even before Pearl Harbor, he's in trouble with the U.S. government not because he's using hate speech but because he's been embezzling from his own company. I guess it makes sense. So about 0.2% of German Americans were believers in Adolf Hitler's policies, which isn't a lot. It's uh, point, yeah, point, point 0.2 is 20 out of 1,000, something like that. So there's a lot of good German Americans, including you know, my ancestors. I was pleased to find that when Kuhn came around to Rochester, New York, where I grew up, uh, nobody showed up. And when I looked into it, it wasn't because word was already out that you might get punished if you go, but uh, that Rochester had its own German-American groups and they were lovers, not haters. And it says, stay away from this guy, he's trouble. And Kuhn showed up and nobody else did. 
So he went to a Rochester bar and had a few drinks and tried Syracuse the next day. So, so Judge Perlman um, gets involved in this and, and, and calls on Mara Lansky. And, and, and um, how does Lansky organize this? And what, you know, how did they, they put it all together? Well, Lan- both Perlman and Lansky understand that the, uh, the, the guys who are going to combat the Nazis have to be Jewish because Gentiles just don't care. It's way too early, 1938. Most uh, non-Jewish Americans feel they don't even have a dog in the fight in the European war. And Hitler's practically con- uh, conquered the, all of Europe at that point, And he's got his eyes set on England. Um, so it had to be Jewish men, had to be men who weren't too hesitant to hurt people. Uh, and it had to be men who weren't particularly worried about breaking the law. Because although Judge Perlman promised that you know, he would have their back if they ever got arrested, and they never did, um, that uh, you, you couldn't uh, have somebody get cold feet in the middle of the fight. So he goes to his uh, a group known as Murder, Inc. And Murder, Inc. is a, a, uh, a set of men set up outside the five-family uh, system in New York who exist only to carry out hits. If someone in Genevieve's family wants to hit somebody in the Gambino family, there has to be a, a vote among all the bosses. And if they vote to make it so, phone call goes to Midnight Rose's back room in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and they tell them who the guy is. And within 48 hours, the guy has been shuffled off the mortal coil, usually pretty neatly and with no clues. So these guys are professional killers. And a lot of them came up the hard way. They fought in the streets and they knew how to handle themselves. But some of them were gun guys like, like Bugsy Siegel out in L.A. They, they, they were powerful men as long as they had their, their gat with them. Um, so first thing Meyer Lansky does is he takes these guys to Gleason's gym, which at the time is in the Bronx. It's moved a couple of times. It's in Dumbo, Brooklyn now. And has Gleason give them some rudimentary boxing skills. So the way, when they go in, they'll know what to do. As, so when the, the, the first riot in New York takes place at the Yorkville Casino, uh, these smug Nazis were picking on Jews largely because they don't think there's ever going to be any blowback. Jewish people are soft. They're never going to be able to, to combat us. We are, you know, we're superior German-Americans. And so the last thing they expect is to have these thugs come running in on them while they're talking about how, how soft and weak and, and inferior Jewish people are and bloodying their noses. And so there's a, and a fun scene the next day because all of the men who are arrested were on the German side uh, and most of them had suffered injuries in, in the big brawl. So there was maybe seven or eight bandaged men in court the morning after the big fight and a Jewish judge is behind the bench and Jewish lawyers are defending these guys. And the, the judge says, you know, you should really be glad that you're in America because the very people that you want wiped out are going to send you home without putting you in jail today. And if, you know, gentlemen, I suggest that uh, you think it through before you get together and say this stuff about Jewish people again. And the, the, the goal of the gangsters was to shut the Nazis up. Uh, it becomes analogous to war because war follows in which you know, some of these guys ended up being drafted and went and fought the Nazis marching across Europe uh, with guns. Uh, but at the time, it wasn't thought of as that kind of a war. It was thought of as 
a way to deal with hate speech because hate speech is still legal. And as long as the Nazis didn't scream fire in a crowded room or say something obscene, uh, they could say whatever they wanted. So it started in New York and um, then this, um, this movement to shut down the Nazis kind of spread. And your book is, is, is broken up um, not strictly chronologically, but, but in, in geographical um, uh, settings. And one of the areas that you talk about um, is here, where I'm sitting here, obviously you're in Brooklyn, I'm on Long Island. Um, talk about um, Camp Siegfried, which oh was out here on Long Island. Yeah, and okay. um, I'll, again, uh, uh, something that a lot of people are not aware of, but this was also um, was a program uh, run by the, um, by the Bund. And talk a little yes. bit about these camps and Camp Siegfried in particular. Well, during my research, there was absolutely nothing that upset me more than the notion of Nazi youth camps in America. Uh, the, the Nazi youth camps in Germany is upsetting. Um, but to have them outside major cities uh, across the country is, is just bizarre. And, of course, it, history barely recognizes that any of this ever happened. Uh, Yapank, Long Island, went Nazi. Uh, their main street was changed to change the name to Hitler Strauss and uh, a youth camp was set there, set there. And they would recruit boys and girls from New York city uh, with brochures that didn't mention Nazism. This is, this is for German American boys and girls. They'll learn how to speak German better. They'll learn pride in their country uh, and they'll learn baseball and running and swimming and have a healthy time and breathe fresh air in the summertime, which is what you want because you live in grimy Brooklyn. And parents would send their kids and the kids wouldn't find out until they got there that they were going to be indoctrinated into a paramilitary force. They were going to have, you know, they were going to, have to march and, and carry wooden guns and, and sig heil to swastikas. And on Sundays, they would give their parade for their proud parents who would come and watch. And politicians would show up and give speeches about how great it was that all these German Americans were, were here and of their clean faces, breathing all this fresh air. And nary a, a, uh, a hesitance that, gee, maybe it's not good to teach these kids that getting rid of Jews is the, the, the way to solve all of America's problems. It's, just, it's stunning to me. And it wasn't just Camp Siegfried. They had, one, they had them in Jersey. They had them in the Catskills. You know, within you know, two woods and a nine iron from... The, uh, the, the, the Borscht Belt, where middle-class Jews would go for uh, summertime fun. So a little bit of an extra insult there. Had them in L.A., had them in the, the Midwest. And uh, up until, right up until the moment that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, there, there's really not much controversy here. You know, it's um, talking about the, discussing Camp Siegfried out on in, in the Yapank area, and actually, until after the war, the um, the, the, the area where the camp was uh, became residential, and and up until very very recently, there were still restrictive covenants um, that were ostensibly to prohibit sale or resale of the properties to people who were not of German descent, um, and those covenants just finally got officially tossed, uh, but they were in, in place, at least on paper, until very, very recently. Yeah, I, I've, uh, 
I was uh, in touch recently with a, uh, a group in Southbury, Connecticut, who are very, very proud of themselves to this very day, because when they, when the Bund came to set up the youth camp in Southbury, Connecticut, people said no. And they had they changed the zoning laws overnight as an emergency move. And when the Germans went out there to the land, they just bought and started to dig a foundation. They were promptly arrested and the youth camp was never built. And, you know, to this day, they're still having celebrations and the the anniversary of the day that the the Nazis came and they got the boot. Uh, But, yeah, not in Yapank. In Yapank, they took hold. And I had a hard time finding anybody in that town who really wanted to talk about it. Yeah, it's, um, really, as I said, up until very, very recently, those, those covenants were still on the books, um, not enforceable, but, it, but, but still there on, on, the, uh, on the transfers and, and all of that. It's crazy. Um, towards the end of your book, you talk about, um, and I guess this was shortly before Pearl Harbor happened, um, a rally in Madison Square Garden, which yes. again people just can't, I'm sure, wrap their heads around a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. Um, how did it come about? And talk about it. Yeah, this is pretty much the last ditch attempt. Uh, Kuhn has traveled the country. He's had his rallies busted up in major cities from from coast to coast in L.A. and New York and Chicago in uh, in the, the Great Lakes area. Um, every place he goes, except for Texas, where things were fine. Uh, but he's had a lot of problems. So he decides instead of having little regional rallies, he's going to have one national rally, you know, pro-America, wake up America rally in Madison Square Garden. And he's very careful to put his ducks in a row. He gets all of his paperwork set up right. Uh, he gets the New York cops to protect him and his people. So there are guards on the outside of, of the garden making sure that uh, the enemy doesn't get in. And we don't even know if the gangsters were there, but everybody else was. Uh, there were, the place was completely surrounded by protesting groups. Now, this is a good year and a half after the, the, the gangsters started punching out Nazis whenever they could find them. Uh, and the, it's become a lot more popular of an idea. Um, you know, England's being bombed. Um, so the there are a lot more Americans who are on, on the, the gangster side now. Um, and the, the police are able to keep everybody out except for one unemployed Jewish plumber from the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn who sneaks in and he waits until Fritz Kuhn's given his speech and he's given his talking his, his crapola and he runs up on the stage, unplugs the microphone, yells into the audience something to the effect of Hitler has one ball and uh, is promptly tackled by Kuhn's security guards. And they pull down his pants, which gets a big laugh in the garden. Uh, ha, 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 ha. Look at the Jew without his pants. And, and it's pretty quickly rescued by the NYPD. And there's a picture of him with his pants still down being carried out by cops. And it looks like the cops are, are you know, his enemy, but he is now in safe hands. Second, the cops have him, he's fine. Pull up your pants. You have to go to jail. You know that. He says, yeah, I know. So he spends the night in jail. And the next morning, the courtroom is packed with Jewish men who want to be the one to pay his bail. And the next day in the newspapers, Fritz Kuhn's dreams of having it be headlines across America about the great German-American Bund rally and the glorious word of Adolf Hitler 
It's all about Izzy Greenbaum pulling the plug on him and he completely stole the show. So Izzy, I, yeah, I got, when my book, I think my book was coming out in about a week or so. And I got a message from Izzy Greenbaum's grandson. So is, is my grandfather going to be in your book? I said, oh, your grandfather's got his own chapter. He's a hero. And by the way, your grandmother's gorgeous. <laughs> you know, it's um, we're, we're just touching on on, on the uh, on the story and the content of the book. It really is just an amazing story that, uh, again, most of our listeners and, and just people are not aware of and, and how it came about and, and the the good work that these uh, otherwise um, questionable types, uh, the gangsters, um, actually engaged in. In, in, in some public service activity. Um, again, we're touching well, my, my morality the, is, based, is based on the, uh, the, the dirty dozen defense, exactly. which is, which is a movie that I think everybody's seen in which the absolute worst criminals in the, in the brig of the U S army are released as long as they go on a suicide mission to fight Nazis. So well, anybody again, you know, you're touching on something. I think one, one of the instructions I, I think that they got was you could do whatever you want to them, but don't kill them. Oh, that's right. Right. That's right. And because if you kill them, we lose the moral high ground. Right. We're not at war with them. We just want them to shut up. And, you know, the war that followed, that was fought with guns. So they, they, they armed themselves soon enough. Um, again, the book is fascinating. The book is Gangsters versus Nazis. We're just touching on the surface here you know, in this little discussion. But um, I'm going to invite everybody. Michael's going to be out at uh, Syosset Library on September 15th for a, a live presentation. And I know, Mike, you have a, um, a really uh, interesting and terrific PowerPoint and oh, a great discussion. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful program. So um, take a look at the book and come on down to the library on the 15th of September. And you can, uh, you can hear from Michael uh, Benson in person. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, it was great talking to you. I'm Thanks, looking forward to I'm looking forward to seeing you in person, and uh, we will uh, we'll get this up, and we'll get people. Sayasid, here. here I come. Yeah, See you we're next looking month. forward to it. Take care. So, with that, everybody, I will uh, turn the page on this chapter of our podcast. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.